Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, author and University of South Carolina Distinguished History Professor Emerita Wanda Hendricks talks about her biography, Mady Hall Zuma, Black Women's Global Activism During Jim Crow and Apartheid, published in October 2022 by the University of Illinois Press. I began this interview with Wanda Hendricks by asking her about her connection through her aunts to Mady Hall Zuma and Zuma's birthplace in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. As a teenager, I used to go up there all the time. It's tobacco country. It was R.J. Reynolds' factory. He was a major white oligarch in the town and helped to create a city that became the largest tobacco manufacturing city in the world. My great aunts loved the city. They had been there for years and years and years. And Miss Mady was their neighbor. She was just a lady that came out on her porch in the mornings. And my aunt always said, hello, Mady. And I waved to her as well. But on one particular morning, she actually came and sat down. And for some reason, South Africa came up. Now, I had just taken a class at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. And I happened to be taking a class on South Africa and had written a paper about a man by the name of Alfred Bettini Zuma. Not knowing who maybe Hall Zuma was, she was talking about South Africa, how she lived there. It was clear she was in the middle of the apartheid fight. And so I was intrigued. And she left and we retreated into the house. I asked my aunt Nola, what was Miss Mady's last name? Well, she couldn't pronounce the name. Finally, in exasperation, she said, she was married to an African and her husband was somebody real important in Africa. And I was like, really? I said, we're in Africa. And she said, South Africa or something. And so I'm remembering this conversation because it was so weird. It's been 40 years, but I still hadn't pieced together that maybe Halzuma was his wife. And so it took me a while to finally figure out that she was his second wife that I had actually read some of her letters, but I didn't know that at the time. From that moment on, I was curious about her and I wanted to write something about her. I didn't know what it was gonna be, but I started collecting things on her, just you know, little things that I'd come across, but I wasn't finding a lot. I just knew that there were these papers, they were his papers, but she had letters in them. I just didn't realize how many letters were in them until I started writing this book. All right, so now, Before you get into details about the papers and and your journey to document her life, she grew up in the segregated South in the early 1900s, and she led a fairly privileged life for an African-American at the time. So could you briefly talk about that privilege and how it would eventually lead to her life as an international activist? Her privilege in many ways shaped her vision of what was possible for 
African-Americans. Now she was limited, of course, by sexism because she wanted to be a doctor. Her father told her no, she could not be. Her father was a doctor and her brother became a doctor. And her mother was educated. They were all educated in what we now call historically Black colleges. She would be educated what is now Winston-Salem State. It was called Slater at the time and at Shaw University. And then she would leave Winston-Salem and go to Columbia University to get her master's degree. But her father was, as far as we can tell, he's the first Black doctor in Winston-Salem. And her mother was the teacher, quit her job once she married Humphrey Hall and, you know, committed her life to domesticity, except that she also was an entrepreneur. She was really good at buying and selling properties. So they had two financial portfolios. They had one for the family that generated income, rental properties. And then the father added to the family coffers, not only as a physician, but he also added these commercial properties in uh, Winston-Salem as well. All of that gives uh, Mady Hall at the time the opportunity to be educated in a way that many African-Americans were not. So she had that kind of privilege. And so Jim Crow for them, it certainly was segregated. They didn't have the same privileges as whites did. Nevertheless, because of her financial status, they were well known. They were helping to build up Black Winston. And so as a result, she benefited from all of that. And then it enabled her to develop relationships with white women, people like Catherine Reynolds, R.J. Reynolds' wife, because her mother also knew Catherine Reynolds. And so they would get involved in the YWCA, the Young Women's Christian Association. Okay. And so that's how she first got involved with the YWCA. I want to jump ahead to when she decides to go to New York to go to Columbia, because that's when she meets her eventual husband, Alfred Zuma. I love the way you were able to document the international courtship and eventual marriage and and wedding in South Africa of Mady Paul and Alfred Zuma. What kind of research were you able to conduct to document their early life together? Well, the courtship itself, I was able to document it because they left letters. She doesn't have, quote, papers of her own. But her papers are included in and embedded in Alfred Zuma's voluminous collection. So I had to go through the entire collection because they're not separated out in order to get to her papers. Where are the papers for Alfred Zuma? Where do they reside? His collection of papers are at the University of Witchwatersrand in Johannesburg. And it is a huge collection. The archivist there was just absolutely fantastic. Gabrielle Mohel, and she also introduced me to some other collections as well. National Council of African Women, uh, you know, they've got some of their papers there as well. But the Alfred B. Zuma papers are located there. Mady Hall Zuma does not have a collection of her own, but he saved all of her letters. And so that's how you know about their courtship. It's remarkable that he saved those letters, but I now know when they met, I know that he comes over to Columbia University and gives talks. He is also engaged with a number of African-Americans here, Max Jurgen, W.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson. And so he comes over here to give a talk at the International House first. And then she meets him. And then as a result of these letters, uh, Alfred Zuma is talking about meeting her. 
And then she's talking about meeting him as well. And so they're writing back and forth to each other. Unfortunately, we don't have his letters to her. So I was having to figure out what he was saying to her by her responses in her letters. Uh, and it wasn't difficult. She talked a lot in her letter. So he just became smitten with her when he first met her and had decided that she was the one. The most interesting part to all of this is he also had other friends looking for him a wife while he was also courting Mehdi Halzuma and they were busy giving him names of people, but he had settled on her. I never intended to talk about their courtship, but realized that I couldn't do this book without doing it. Partly because as people write about her, nobody had given an explanation as to why she went to South Africa to marry him. And she sounded a little wacky, you know, that she got on a ship in New York Harbor and sailed over to Cape Town, South Africa in the middle of what would become World War II. And so I realized that I had to explain what this woman was doing, that it was part adventure, it was part her faith, it was her interest in Africa and serving the people of Africa and comes from her own background as an activist in Winston-Salem and her connection to the AME Zion Church. And you can see that in the way in which she's talking to him. She initially did not intend to marry him. I think he just sort of wore down. And uh, I think it was also very much a part of her adventurous spirit. That's fascinating. You say that she doesn't have any papers. So how were you able to get information about her life before marriage? Well, one of the things in Jim Crow is that the newspaper wrote about prominent people all the time. Now, Winston-Salem early on did not have a Black newspaper. However, the white newspaper, the Winston-Salem Journal, also had a section called News of the Colored People. And because her family was so prominent, they were in it all the time. And she was too. That's how I found her, which meant that the newspaper is digitized up to 1929. And then after that, it does not. So for about three, almost four years, I sat down in the library at a microfilm machine going through the newspaper. And maybe Hall Zuma and her sisters, her mother, her father, they just show up in it a lot. So that's how I was able to piece much of that together. Also, you know, I did the typical census searches. I went to Winston-Salem State University and their archives. The archivist was great there, Tom Flynn. I also went to the public library. And then I got their death certificates from the city administrators. Because you're talking about information from North Carolina, from New York, <laughs> from Atlanta, when she was in Atlanta, South Africa, uh, Johannesburg, Cape Town, and obviously when she then comes back to the States and any travel she did internationally. How do you organize all that and keep track of all the different sources that you're referencing? Well, at first it was real hard. <laughs> I was all over the place. I had to figure out who her friends were. I had to figure out why she ended up at Columbia University Teachers College. What exactly did that mean? So I had to go to Columbia to their archives as well. I had to find out, you know, where did she live? Who was in New York? I went to the Schomburg also to find out something about Alfred Zuma because I now sort of knew who some of the people were that he knew in New York. I was like, why does he keep going to New York? I even went to the United Nations archive because I also knew that he went to the United Nations. But I was being 
led by some scholars, particularly the African scholars, because I didn't quite know what I was doing. And so they were quite helpful in giving me some pointers as to where I should look. But none of them could tell me any more about Mehdi Halzuma, though. There's one major journal article on her that's been done by Iris Berger. But other than that, there hasn't been anything really seriously done on her. She is mentioned in a, a, you know, a gazillion books, but it's really as Alfred Rizuma's wife, mostly. So it was a, just a colossal mess when I first started. Now, as a scholar of African-American women's history, I was better at sort of putting the Winston-Salem part together at first because I understood Black women's activism. The problem was she was engaged with so many people. I had every cousin, every friend, anybody she engaged with. So I had to take some of those people out. I still have a lot of them in there because I wanted people to know that she had community and that she was engaged with these other women, white women and black women, and that she will have relationships with them for the rest of her life. So I had a colossal mess initially and then had to sort of pare it down but she took me around the world. Well, let me get to the other part of the world, uh, Africa, the, the continent, and South Africa in particular. For people who don't know, Alfred Zuma was not only a South African physician, but he was the first president of the ANC, or the African National Congress. Of course, the ANC today is the ruling party of South Africa. But back in the 1940s, when she went over to South Africa to marry him, that was clearly not the case. So can you talk about the role that Zuma played in serving as president of the ANC and then Mady's participation in the organization and her activism? She arrives there in May in 1940. So she is on the cusp of becoming this international figure simply because she goes over to Cape Town and she marries him. And by December, he becomes president of the African National Congress. It drastically changes both of their lives. Now, Alfred B. Zumas was a very prominent person in South Africa. He'd been American educated. He went to Tuskegee and uh, he graduated right after Booker T. Washington died in 1915. He was determined that he was going to get his medical degree. And so he stayed in the United States till I think it was 26 or somewhere in there. But he always knew he was going back home to South Africa. The ANC was already there, but it was in disarray. There was no central figure really sort of holding the organization together. And so a number of the people that knew Alfred Zuma were so excited that he had come back home in the 1920s, his stock in South Africa had really risen. And so even... Before Mehdi arrived, they asked him, would he be interested in putting his name forward as president of the African National Congress? It's clear that once Mehdi gets there, they discuss this. And by December, after she has married him, he becomes president of the African National Congress. For anyone who's not clear about what the ANC was, what was their purpose? The purpose of the ANC was to really assist Black South Africans in South Africa. And it really was also to fight against the South African government. We typically think of the South African government implementation of apartheid as sort of the beginning of racism in South Africa. It is not. It's just that apartheid becomes the draconian sort of measures that they institute. And apartheid itself evolves over time. 
But prior to apartheid, there was severe racism and oppression in South Africa and had been for a long time. So the ANC is the political organization and the activist organization becomes the way that Black South Africans are able to unify and to be able to uh, confront the South African government as much as they could. Navy says apartheid is way worse than Jim Crow. She even argues even before apartheid is implemented that the racism in South Africa was worse than the Jim Crow that she knew in Winston-Salem. And part of that comes from her own privilege and the way she was treated in Winston-Salem. Nevertheless, I do believe that she's right about the distinction between apartheid and Jim Crow as we knew it in America, except for those people who lived in places like Mississippi or South Carolina and the ways in which they were often treated in the United States, but maybe would still argue that apartheid was way worse. So um, I believe and argue that you could see her influence on him. Uh, he was always interested in children and the success of women, et cetera, because he was a gynecologist. Nevertheless, you can see even in his speeches to the ANC, that she has influenced him. Her activism in Winston-Salem is being transferred to South Africa. And so she will become the president of the African National Congress Women's League. What was the reception like? Because she's a, an African-American and right. often, you know, the reception of someone from another country assuming leadership roles can cause some resentment by the women born and raised in that country. So what was the reception like for Mady as she started dealing with the ANC leadership? Well, before she becomes the head of the ANC Women's League, in 1941, she creates something called the Zinzeli Club, a sort of self-help club. There'd been a number of those, so she didn't invent the idea. But what she did do was she created an organization and South African women uh, were quite interested in it. Now, the question about what they thought of her, you begin to see that when she gets there. A lot of Black South African women did not like the new Ms. Zuma. They believed that she thought herself superior to them. The fact that she had married Alfred Zuma and they couldn't figure out why he couldn't find a South African wife because he had been married before. Unfortunately, his first wife died. He had two children. Mady Hall Zuma had never been married. She's like 40 some odd years old when she goes there and marries him. So they were suspicious of her and rightly so. So uh, she had to figure out how to ingratiate herself to the people there. And so the Zizale Club was one of those ways. So she invited them to her house, a group of women, and she did go find the elite women of the community. And uh, the, uh, she created the Zizale Clubs. And the Zizale Clubs, over a 10-year period, they grew all over South Africa. And you ha we have in Alfred B. Zuma's papers letters to Mady Hall Zuma telling her how much these women believed they had learned from her. They loved her. So by the time she actually leaves there in 1963, it is fascinating to see the changes and the shift and the way in which people see her. She had a, a very gregarious sort of personality, and she was determined she was going to fit in. That doesn't mean that everybody liked her or that they believed that she was doing, quote, right by Black South African women, in part because she did the same thing she did in Winston-Salem, and that was she was trying to ensure that they wouldn't be treated badly, that they wouldn't be beaten. By the time apartheid comes, she wants to make sure 
that their activism is seen as social welfare and not politicized. But it was politicized. You live in South Africa and every day you breathe as a black person, you're being demonized. And so whatever she was doing, it was very similar to the ways in which she dealt with Jim Crow. The Zinzili Club, was it associated with the YWCA? She believes that the future of the Zinzili Club is one in which she's going to have to connect it to a national organization within South Africa and then ultimately a world organization. And so she will play the role in connecting it to the national white YWCA in South Africa. And if you think about it, apartheid comes in 1948, and here is a woman who is in effect, defying apartheid, that separateness, and connecting Black South African women to the white YWCA in South Africa. Ultimately, they would all become major parts of and full partners in the world YWCA that's located in Geneva, Switzerland. This is what gives her this international fame beyond her husband. So she is no longer, it just to quote, an appendage to Alfred Zuma. She is now sort of leading this international movement because she gets elected to the executive committee of the World YWCA making policy. So she was smart enough to understand that she could not keep the Zinzeli clubs local. They could not just simply be a scattering of women connected to the Zinzeli club in Johannesburg or in these cities all across South Africa. She wanted to make it an international organization. Okay. And was there ever a clash between the YWCA's and the Zinzeli Club's Christian principles and those of women who followed indigenous African religions and spirituality? I can't say I found evidence of that, but that does not mean it did not happen. What I do find is there are clashes between the white and Black women about existing in South Africa, it was clear that the white, white women, especially at the beginning, had no idea what was happening to Black South African women, that ultimately they'll have to carry passes. You know, they fought it for a long time. Men were already carrying passes. Black men were, but uh, many of the women had been successfully been able to keep from carrying passes. But by the 1950s, they're having to start carrying passes as well. And as apartheid They were determining where you could live, how long you could be in a particular place. So I suspect that there probably were clashes over their faith. There probably were some clashes with maybe Zuma, but maybe really was a diplomat in so many ways. And she was able to successfully bridge those gaps in part because she wanted to learn as much as she could about the South African people. Your book's subtitle also indicates that you document the global activism of Black women in general, both in South Africa during apartheid and in America's Jim Crow era. So we're talking about massive amounts of information, not just about her life, but about the social uh, milieu that people were operating in. So I, I wanted to ask you, how did you manage What I can only imagine was a serious balancing act between telling her story and telling the broader story of the freedom struggles in two separate countries that were internationally significant. So how did you do that? 
glad you asked me that question because <laughs> uh, I'm hopeful that I did it well. It was really, really hard for me, primarily because I didn't really know South African history. I mean, I, I had taken those classes at UNC Charlotte, but that was like, you know, 40 years ago. And I knew a little bit. And so I had to play catch up. And I was a little scared about the ways in which I was going to see this as the pandemic is raging. I didn't have access to a scholarly community physically, but I am a part of a reading and writing group and we've got some African scholars in it. They told me, don't worry what you're writing because I was afraid that what I was writing about South Africa was too simplistic and that somebody had already written there like, nope, <laughs> nobody had written this story before. And there's a war that's raging in World War II. And then we've got the post-war, we've got the Cold War. So all of this is a part of it. And America is centered in it, and yet it is decentered. So um, it was hard to do. And I'm hoping that I pulled it off because she is a larger than life figure, actually, that we don't know. I mean, we don't hear that women raised money to send to Europe or that the wives sent emissaries over to Europe to help rebuild houses and communities and community centers for uh, women and girls in these European cities. We don't hear that story. And the why is in part at fault for it because they have been, as one of the members explained to me, they're not busy telling the story. They are busy doing what needs to be done. But they were engaged all around the world. And maybe Halzuma was a part of that engagement. So now, how long did the process take? Did you research first and then start writing? Or were you writing throughout the process of uh, working on the book? So for the first probably six months or a year, I just was doing research. When did you start? I started right after I did my first biography on Fanny Berry Williams. And it was published in 2014. And I swore after I did Fanny Berry Williams, that I would never write another biography in this life again, because it was so hard. She's another one of those women that everybody knows about, especially those of us who do Black women's history. We all quote her because she's so quotable. She's all over the place, but nobody knew who she was. Who was she? She was a African-American woman who was born in upstate New York and uh, became one of the most prominent Black women of the late 19th, early 20th century. She helped start the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs. She was a suffragist. Um, you find her on the stage with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And like I said, she um, wrote all kinds of pieces of uh, literature. That's why she's so quotable. After that, saying I'd never write another biography, and then I wrote another. <laughs> so there. Well, you know, you also had said earlier that if not for writing that book, you wouldn't have been able to write this one. It helped me to understand who Mady Halzuma was far sooner than I would have. Both of them were difficult to do. Both of them were people who were so prominent during their time, who in effect were erased or got lost in history. And so because I had done Fanny already, it took me over a decade to write Fanny Berry Williams and do the research for it because most of the newspapers weren't digitized then. Because the process of writing about her was so onerous and difficult and so uplifting when I finished it, I could write Mady Halzuma. So regardless of what I've said about what a colossal mess at the beginning all of this was, I had the strong belief that it was going to come together because I knew what had happened to me in writing Fanny Berry Williams. 
So if you had to offer some recommendations to writers who were going to write about lesser known women or men, what would your recommendations be? Well, my first one is you've got to really like your subject and you've got to want to write about them because there will be times when you will want to give up. And especially when they are so lesser known that you are having to go to places that you never imagined going. My uh, second recommendation would be don't discount any place, any resource, anything. I mean, I told you I went to the UN. I didn't find much, but then I found a name that was connected to Zuma. I went all the way to New York and that's all I found. On the other hand, you know, I went to Schomburg and found a lot. I went to Columbia University's archive and found a whole bunch. So don't discount any resource, even ones you wouldn't think would be important. I didn't know the YWCA was in many ways the key to this book, both in Winston-Salem and then in Geneva, Switzerland, the worldwide. So don't discount any resource. That means that you just have to look under every rock and everything. That was author and distinguished history professor emerita Wanda Hendricks talking about her book, Mady Hall Zuma, Black Women's Global Activism During Jim Crow and Apartheid, published in October 2022 by the University of Illinois Press. We recorded this interview via Zoom on October 14th of last year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful day.